Let me invite you to go to Nehemiah 8, back to Nehemiah 8, so that's page 403 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there. I have just a slightly, a little bit longer introduction until I get to the outline, um, so I'm just warning you about that. Um, so if you don't see an outline pop up right away in the next couple of minutes, don't panic. You will get lunch today. It may be at four, but you'll get lunch today, so I'm teasing. We know that God raised up a leader in Nehemiah to lead the rebuilding of the wall. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Um, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, about 800 miles away. As I mentioned before, it's the distance from about here to Dallas. And so given the uh, speed of transportation in Nehemiah's day, um, that was even further, in a sense, relatively speaking, than what Dallas would be to us. But yet Dallas seems pretty far away to us, but he, um, he did not have to go, um, but he had heard that there was great shame uh, because, Nehemiah, uh, excuse me, because Jerusalem's walls were, were still torn down. There had already been a wave of people going back, led by Zerubbabel, uh, to, to uh, rebuild the temple, and Ezra was part of that. Uh, they brought Ezra in later on, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes, uh, to teach the law, he was he was he had devoted his life to teaching the scriptures, and um, I'll mention that here in just a second here. But so Nehemiah leads this. A monumental work was done of rebuilding the wall in fifty-two days, and but unfortunately, we saw that monumental work also always means monumental opposition. In chapter 6, I know I had you go to chapter 8, but just turn back to chapter 6 just for a second. I want to point out a couple just so you can kind of see. Um, like this is in verse 1 talking about Sambalat and Tobiah and Gershom. Excuse me, Geshem. Uh, they'd heard about this, and, and they, in chapter 4, they had already begun to oppose the work. But then they said this in, in verse, uh, let's see here, in verse 5 it says, In the same way Samballot uh, for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Okay, And here's what the letter said. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us and take counsel together. Okay, so there's this opposition that you and I face all the time, and it's very true. It's like this. You know, some people are saying, okay, well, wait a minute here. Who's saying this? Well, Sam Ballot saying it. That's who's saying it. Some people are saying, he gets it. And then you see in verse 10, there's like this spiritual language here. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, uh, who was confined to his house, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, why should such a man as I run away? You see, what they were doing is they were trying to say, you know what, we need to talk about this in the temple. We need to, we need to you know, see what God has to say about these plans and things like that. Very spiritual language and things like this. 
He says it's for your protection because, you know, they're trying to kill you. And then notice later on, it says in verse 12, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. And so the point is, is that opposition is more than just swords and daggers. Often opposition comes with uh, language that sounds like, you know, you know, people are saying this. I'm just concerned about you that people are saying this. Or, or you know, yeah, there's these rumors flying around that you just want to be a king and you're doing this all for the wrong motives. Or, you know, you know we need to talk to God about this and see what's going on here. Or, yeah, I'm just trying to help you. And it's not even true. So opposition was really difficult for Nehemiah because it's one thing to see an army approaching you and you know that that's something you guys stand against, but it's really difficult as a leader to be able to parse through some of these things that come your way uh, in these language here. So I just wanted to show you the nuance of the opposition and how difficult it must have been for Nehemiah. But once the wall was completed, there was a corporate gathering. That's what we read about in chapter 8 earlier. And they asked Ezra to come and bring the books of the law. Now, one of the things that I think is so important about this is that monumental physical work should be based upon and for the purpose of monumental spiritual work. And so one of the things that we're doing here in 2018 is we really want to kind of renovate this room here because this room has been neglected for a long time. Um, oh, and we've worked in other places and things like that throughout the years. But we really need to, uh, to, to, to fix some of the things that are happening uh, in this room here. And it's not just because we want a, an opulent room to meet in. In fact, we're avoiding that. But what we do need is we need something that's not distracting and, uh, uh, and, and maybe even preventative of, of, of people being able to, to concentrate or whatever. So, but there's a spiritual reason that underlines the physical reason uh, of doing these monumental things. And so that was one of the things that I appreciated about Nehemiah is that he wanted the wall to rebuilt. It wasn't necessarily just for safety and security. In fact, he doesn't even really highlight that. He highlights the disgrace. He's like, what are people going to think when they walk in and then God city here, I mean, is in disrepair. What are people going to think? And so very similar for our situation as well. But one of the things I want to point out in the introduction here, I have kind of like two points in the introduction. Then we'll get to the main point here, which we'll go through pretty quickly here. But we see there's a priority of the word here. In verse 3 of chapter 8, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's like four or five hours. That they're just reading the word and teaching the word. And people, notice what it says. It says they were attentive to the book of the law at the end of verse 3. In every revival, there was a resurgence concerning the priority of God's word. In every revival... And that's what I'm hoping that God, and I'm praying for, and I sense that God is bringing in our midst here, but there has to, if we're going to see God do a revival here, we're going to have to see a resurgence of the priority of God's word, and we're going to see what that means here in just a few minutes. But notice that there was also a procedure for teaching the word. They brought Ezra in to teach the word, and, and, and we find out a little bit about Ezra back in chapter 7 of the book that bears his name, Ezra, in verse 10. I put the verse on the screen for you. It says this, for Ezra, this is who he was, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He'd set his heart to do this. This became his life mission. You know, it wasn't too long ago, I was talking to some neighbors, and uh, they had, uh, they, they told me, one of them told me, they said, you know, uh, yeah, I've got questions about the Bible. 
because uh, we started talking about the scriptures and things like that, and, and uh, they had grown up a different religion, and, and, uh, and, and the person, one person said, yeah, I've got some questions about the Bible, and my response was, I said, well, it's your lucky day. I've given my life to studying the Bible, all right? You know, I said, now, I may not have all the answers, but we can work hard and get them together, and, and we've had some subsequent good conversations and answering questions and things like that, so you can keep praying about that relationship because I want to teach the Bible. Much like Ezra, I, this resonates with me. He had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and rules in Israel. Now, it's one thing to study the Bible, but then you've got to obey it. Notice you, you study, obey, then teach. It's not study, teach, then maybe obey, right? Because if you're study, teaching, and not obeying, you're not teaching very well at all. And so here's the pattern here that Ezra had lived. And we see this also in chapter 8 of back in Nehemiah in verse 8. Look at this. And it says this. We read it earlier. They read, from the book of the, uh, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. They gave the sense so the people understood the reading. Okay, so this really, just so you know, this is the pattern that I seek to follow. I, I try to recognize that we're a visual society and include graphics and try to be interesting with some uh, stories and things like that. But at the end of the day, this is my model that I'm trying to follow here. Because at the end of the day, what's going to help you is if you know the Bible, not that you know my life stories, right? Okay? As interesting of a person as I am, okay? All right? There's a little bit of joke there. You can laugh. That's my weak attempt at humor. You, uh, what's going to change your life is the Word of God. And so this is what I do every week, okay? And, and, and I'm just, I'm trying to study the Word of God, and I'm trying to understand it, trying to give you the sense of it, and so that the Spirit of God can use that and then hopefully change your life. So this is my passion, okay? To study the Word, to know the Word, to try to obey the Word as best as I can, and I fail all the time. Ask my wife. Please don't, really. But here's the thing is that, um, and then teach it to you, okay? Because this is the pattern that I see in the Scripture, okay? And so um, that's where, that's what kind of frames my pastoral ministry here. But when we see this here, and this is the reason why I've given my life to this, is because the word, not me, not the preacher, okay, the word has powerful effects upon God's people. And that's what I want to point out to you this morning. I want to point out these powerful effects that we see uh, from this book. And I want you to ask yourself, is this in my life? Is the word having this impact in my life? If we prioritize God's words, there's things that are going to happen from the scriptures here. Is it happening in my life? These are the questions I want you to ask. First of all, in chapter 8, we see that prioritizing the word leads to celebration. It leads to celebration. We've already read the first eight verses. Then in verse 9, it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for the people wept as they heard the words of the law. We're going to get into why they were weeping here in just a few minutes here. But the first they said, Look, there's time for weeping, but right now we need to celebrate here. He said, then go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites called all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. I I wish I could have been there. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if that's just a nice way of saying shut up or whatever, but they're saying, be quiet. Don't mourn. This is a day of celebration because we're reading the word to you for the first time in in a long time that these people were hearing. And all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Did you notice that the basis of that last verse I just read, the basis of their celebration was because they understood the words. It wasn't because someone told them to be happy. It wasn't because someone told them to buck up. It wasn't told them that says, hey, you know what? This is something you gotta, you gotta just do and so they did it in obedience. No, this was something because they understood the word. When the word became priority to them, it caused great celebration in their lives. In verse 13, we see this. It says, um, on the second day, the heads of fathers of the houses came with the priests and Levites. They came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And so we see here that there is, when you celebrate the word, when there's celebration, it gives a greater thirst for the word, okay? A greater thirst for the word, verse 13. This was after they had spent four to five hours listening to the words read to them. They were standing there. We read this in chapter 8. It's a powerful scene in my mind. They've seen a great work accomplished. They had to be feeling pretty good about themselves. That They banded together. They worked hard together. They accomplished this task most likely much faster than they ever thought was possible. And they they were amazed by what God has done. And they're getting ready to do a dedication that we'll read about in a couple chapters here. I think it's in chapter 12. That they do this dedication on the wall. But they're not even there yet. They're kind of rejoicing what God has done here And then there's a corporate gathering. And in a very solemn way, Ezra comes onto the scene. We know from the beginning of chapter 8 that they made a wooden platform for the purpose of him standing and proclaiming the word. And so he mounts the, the, the platform and he stands up on this wooden platform and he unrolls the word of God and he begins to read and begins to teach and begins to give the instruction of it. And instinctively, as he, as he, as he gets up there and opens the word, instinctively, the people understanding the reverence of the moment, understanding what was happening here, they stand up out of reverence for God's word. They stand up and they're, they're anticipating to hear from God here and what he has to say. And he begins to teach and people are helping teach because there is like 40,000 people gathered here at this time. And so there's people that are, you know, hearing and calling it back and because they didn't have amplification. And so there's people uh, teaching the scriptures and they say, amen, amen. They lift up their hands. And then they bowed their faces to the ground and worshiped the Lord. You can imagine being in that congregation. You can imagine being in that moment. The priority of God's word and the celebration that was left. And what that did is they didn't go, wow, that was a good experience. All right, now let's move on to the next thing in life. The next day and the day after, they had this insatiable thirst for the word, because they had celebrated it. They had seen what God had been doing, and so they begin to thirst more and more for the word. But in order to have celebration, it means that there's obedience. Celebration means obedience. Look at verse 14. 
and they found it written in the law of the Lord that God that had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh months. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all the towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, uh, uh, um, olive myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And so the people, when they see, when they're instructed in the word and they're celebrating and making priority, immediately they say, wait a minute here, it's the seventh month. And, and the law says that during this month, we should have a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths is one of the three main feasts of Israel. And they said, wait a minute, this is the time. We should be doing this. And so they stop everything and they obey because they had celebrated the word. And so my question for us is, do we celebrate the word? Before you answer that question, you got to say, am I obedient to the word? The word is very clear on many things that we should be doing. And it's easy for Christians to say, yes, I understand the word and I, I love the word, but it's easy for them to live according to their own standard as well. And so my plea for you and for me and for my family is that we prioritize the word of God to the point of that when we understand it, we see it, it's immediate obedience. It's not going through the filter of, well, you know, but it's so difficult because, no, 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 no. Can I be honest? You don't get that right. I don't get that right. I don't get the right to read the scriptures and it says, okay, this is what we must do. And they go, well, you know, let me think about it. No, 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 no. You don't get that right. We're servants of Jesus Christ. We're servants of God. And so we read something. We say, wait a minute. Just like these people here, they say, wait a minute here. We're supposed to be doing a feast. And so they stop everything and they do the feast. Man, I love that about these people. And all that we would do the same way. We read some of the word and say, wait a minute here. We're supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to be loving one another. We're supposed to be bearing one another's burdens. Let me try to do that. You say, well, I don't really have a relationship with that person. We'll make a relationship with that person. You see, there's so many excuses that we listen, that we listen to in our own minds. And God is saying, just be obedient. Look, the Christian life, you've got to be careful how I say this. The Christian life is not complex, okay? It is hard, but it's not complex. Meaning, just take 10 minutes a day and read this book and you'll know what God's asking you to do. But we come up with so many excuses. And my point is this, we, we are not really celebrating the word if we're not obeying the word. Okay? And so it's easy for us to say we appreciate the word. It's easier to say we prioritize the word. And we may even read the Bible every day. But unless we're obeying it, we're not really celebrating it. Now, there's something else. We come to chapter 9. This is in chapter 8 where they're doing all the celebration. and things like that. So they have the feast. At the end of chapter 8, you see this in the end of verse 18. It says they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. I love that. According to the rule. They said, well, this is what the law says. This is what we're going to do. Okay? So the Bible says this. We're going to do it. That should be, um, uh, you know, um, uh, I, re I remember hearing a, uh, a, a statement. It says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. 
And I understand that, and it's good, and everything like that, but there's, there's too much information in that statement. It should be God said it, that settles it, okay? <laughs> All right? Uh, doesn't matter if I believe it or not. God said it, it settles it, and so we become obedient to it. But prioritizing the word in chapter 9 leads to not only celebration, but confession. In chapter 9, we see now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth upon their heads. It's a, a, symb, a symbolic of repentance and mourning for sin. So they celebrate, and now they're going back to mourning here. And all the Israelites separated, this is verse 2, separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law. Here it is, they're reading again. They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. You see, one of the powerful effects of the word is not only should it cause us to celebrate God and cause us to rejoice in God and cause us to say, man, I need to be obedient to this God, but it should also cause us to confess, mourn. You know, I hope that as we go through our services on Sundays, if there's a lyric in the songs that we're singing that are based on the Bible, that, that something kind of convicts your soul, I hope you don't just push it aside. I hope that every Sunday when we're gathered today, that there are hundreds of prayers going up. Yes, hundreds, and I know how many people are here, but we can pray more than once. Hundreds of prayers going up to the Lord saying, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me for this. You look across and you see someone and you think, and you have a judgmental thought about that person, the very next thought should be, God, please forgive me for that. They are objects of your love. Why in the world would I think of them that way? You see, we should have times of confession to the Lord throughout the, as we're coming together here. So when I'm reading the Bible, as, as, as I'm trying to teach you and say, hey, here, this is what it is. If you say, man, this is, this is something I need to grow in. Don't stop there. We all think that. We all think that we should improve in some way. But it's got to go further. It's got to say, God, forgive me and give me the strength to grow in this area. And so prioritizing the word leads to confession. And what that means is, first of all, that the word should prompt us to confess our shortcomings. I read to you chapter 3 that as they were reading the word, they read it and then they confessed. As I read the Bible and God points out things to me, it's easy for me just to kind of close the book and move on to the next assignment in life or next job responsibility. But I've missed it if I've done that. And I'm ashamed to say I've done that too many times in my life. But when God convicts me of something and God says, you know, you need to grow in this area, that's the moment where I got I to gotta get on my knees and say, God, forgive me. And so when was the last time you were so convicted of sin that you got on your knees and you said, God, please forgive me. I confess my shortcomings to you and I want you to change me. It's easy to see the shortcomings in everybody else. But what about your shortcomings? Are you confessing that for the Lord? That's a powerful effect of the word. The word should be causing us to confess our sin before the Lord. But notice, it wasn't just their shortcomings. It was also the ones of previous generations. Did you notice that? It says here, they confessed, in verse 2, and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. 
Did you notice that they are confessing sins of previous generations? Now, why would they do that? Because they suddenly saw that God deserved better than what their forefathers gave them. And they felt so bad about that. And they felt so compelled to the, that God gets his glory that they said, please, please forgive us of the sins of our fathers that they did not follow you. Forgive You deserve better than that. What an awesome view of God that is. Not, well, hey, hey, wasn't me who messed up. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. It was them. I, I'm innocent. No, it was God. You deserve every generation to follow you. And that didn't happen. Please forgive us. Forgive us. Confess the shortcomings. But not only should it cause us to confess our shortcomings, when we prioritize the word, it should prompt us to confess God's greatness. It's interesting to me, and, and I was just going to highlight some things, but I'm going I'm to just read a, lot, a large portion of chapter 9, okay? So I want you to follow along with me as I read this, okay? I'm going to start in verse 6. I'm going to go to the end of the chapter, okay? So in verse 6 here, this is their prayer, okay? This is their confession. To, they've, they've asked God to forgive them their sins, and then this is then how they move into their prayer. Look at this in verse 6 of chapter 9. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave, them the, gave him the name Abraham. You found his, his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire at night to light them, for they uh, for light them the way in which they should go. You came down to Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and thirst, water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and we're not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to, sla to their slavery in Egypt. But you are God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. 
Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The power, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of cloud by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand. When their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard from them, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemy. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times, You deliver them according to your mercies. Verse 32. Now therefore, our great God, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, our priests, our peoples, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That is what confession looks like. That is what confession looks like when you're before God and you're saying, God, here's where I've come up short. Here's where I've fallen short. Here's where I've rebelled against you. I'm very specific in this, but you have been great. You have been awesome. Look what you have done. And so confession should prompt us to confess God's greatness. So when was the last time you're reading the Bible and then all of a sudden your heart has just moved so much that you've just got to stop and you've just got to tell God how great he is because this is exactly what these people are doing. They're reading God's word. They're prioritizing God's 
God's word. They're fellowshipping with God. And all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute here, God is extraordinarily great. And they start going back in their history of their life. When was the last time you stopped what you were doing and you put everything aside and you just went back to your earliest memory and you started just going through your life and saying, God, you were here. God, you were here. God, you were here. You did this. You did this. Oh man, you did this. How did I forget about that? When was the last time you did that? Let me tell you, it can't, you, you can't let too much time go be, be, between times of doing that because that is what strengthens your faith. I'm telling you, when you go through difficulties in life and you go through discouragement seasons in life and you're, you're depressed and you're discouraged and you're wondering what, trying to make sense of this world, which we all go through those times, your theology has to be stronger than your feelings in those moments. And your theology is based upon what God has revealed in his word and your experience with him throughout your life. So here's my, here's my pastoral admonition to you this week. Spend time confessing the greatness of God. Get in the book and see what he's done and say, wait a minute here. It says, God is merciful. How has he shown me mercy? You see, when we prioritize the word of God like this, and it leads to confession, it leads to great worship. But there's one other thing, and our final point this morning is that prioritizing God's word leads to covenantal living. At the end of chapter 9, after they're having this great confession, it says we're slaves to this day in the land. This is verse 36 of chapter 9. We're slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So they were feeling the effects of sin. It says because of this, verse 38 we make a firm covenant in writing and the sealed document of the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then chapter 10 begins to tell us about this covenant that they make before the Lord. And so when we prioritize the word of God, it not only causes great celebration of what God has done and who God is and how awesome he is, it should move us to confession of sin, of where we're falling short, of our rebellion, of our arrogance, of our pride. And then the next step after that is in saying, I covenant before you to follow you. That doesn't mean that you'll never fail again. In fact, God knows you're going to fail again. But it means, you say, I'm going to take this seriously. It means, this is why I love the supper, uh, the Lord's Supper, is that we get this chance to say, okay, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm getting recalibrated this morning before anything else, before my job, before my hobbies, before my family, before anything else, I'm a follower of Christ. And I've got to keep that in priority because then that is going to make me a good family member, a good employee, and someone who uses my time wisely. And so this covenantal living we see in chapter 10, I'm not going to go through the first uh, few verses um, of, uh, of, of, of chapter 10, but if we, if we drop down verse uh, 28, it talks about the rest of the people who are there and all the people who have knowledge and understanding. They joined in, and oh, so look at verse 29. They joined with their brothers and their nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given to Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. The first thing they covenanted was to live obediently, as we just said. 
One of the most fundamental questions that will guide your life is what role does the Bible play in your life? Does, is the Bible a book of suggestions or the book of law for you? If the Bible says do this and we don't, then we're disobedient. And so what I would suggest from the beginning of a year what I would suggest is that we, we revisit the priority of the word. And we say, this is going to be something that I, and by God's grace and God's enablement, I am going to work hard. We were reminded in Adult Discipleship Hour today of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, it's by God's grace that I am who I am. Okay? And if you're a follower of Christ, it's only by God's grace. But we also saw in that same verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Wayne pointed out to us was he says, I work harder than any. And the thought as I'm sitting there listening to him teach and everything, I, I thought, you know, hard work and God's grace are not mutually exclusive. We, we, we've got to work hard in this Christian life. And we've got to say, I will obey and I will follow and I will make decisions that are difficult to make and I will, I, I will do this and understand that we're going to fail. But then that's why we repent. That's why we then celebrate and then repent and then we come back to covenantal living. It's a cycle that we're going to repeat over and over again until we get to heaven. But the problem is that sometimes we get discouraged and so then we stop and we begin to just drift away and we start avoiding the very things that God wants for us to keep us on track. The things that God has given us, the very lifelines that God has given to us, whether it be church or whether it be the Lord's Supper or prayer or fellowship or, or Bible intake, all these things, we start to, as you've noticed, and I know you've experienced this, I know you have, okay, that you start drifting away from those things because you, you get caught up with this world and you get caught up with, with uh, your own problems and difficulties and and, and, and it is difficult. This world is difficult. And so what happens is that we begin to drift away from those things and we're playing right into the hand of the enemy because that's what he wants us to do and it cuts us out. It cuts us away from the very lifelines that God has intended for us. And so this is one of the reasons why I, I, I've given my life to the scriptures and to the supper and to a teaching and to fellowshipping with believers. You, I don't know if you know this or not. Um... There are some Sundays where I don't feel like coming to church, okay? Now, it's pretty obvious if I skip, so I don't, okay? Um, so I have that extra pressure, you know? If I just sleep in one day and say, you know what, I can't do it today, and so I sleep in, all right? Pretty soon, I'm going to be getting text messages. I'm going to be getting phone calls, Okay? Uh, everything okay? Uh, where are you at? Okay. I should not be the only person who gets text messages and phone calls if I avoid church. I am of no more value to this assembly than anyone else. Now I have other responsibilities which I tried to take very seriously. But, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to come to me and say, hey, have you seen so-and-so? I haven't seen him in a while. And uh, I always, sometimes I do, but I always want to say, I don't always, but it depends on the relationship, but sometimes I, I just want to say, well, have you, have you, have you talked to them? Have you, have you reached out to them? 
I can't tell you how many times, and not just in this church, I've been, in, I've been involved in church, like I said, my entire life. Uh, you know, I think I was born on a Monday, and I think Wednesday night prayer meeting, I was at church, okay? So, been literally my whole life, okay? Um, and I've seen this over and over again. People leave a church, and then I have a conversation with them after they left the church, and they'll say, this church doesn't care about me. I said, what do you mean this church doesn't care about you? He said, I was gone for three months, and not a single person reached out to me. Now, a lot of times, that's on them, because they have so distanced themselves leading up to the leaving that people don't feel like they have a relationship with that person anymore. So they have to deal with that. But on the other end, on the other end, we should be fighting for one another. You know, Satan wants to pick us off one by one. Sometimes we think that Satan's strategy for the church is like these massive splits where, you know, this side of the church decides, hey, we're done, and they're gone. You know, since they're a team that won on Sunday night, they can leave church or something like this. And so <laughs> Stacy leads the rebellion, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? And so they're gone. Sometimes we think that's what Satan wants, and then this side over here is left. No, 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 no. He does do that sometimes. He's more like a sniper. You know, got Don, got Katie. Got Ethan, you know? That's more like, and pretty soon we're looking around like, where is everybody? See, we got, we got to be eyes aware. Covenantal living, say, hey, wait a minute here. We said by a covenant, by a church covenant, that we will look out for one another. When you join the church, that's in the covenant. And if you don't believe me, I put extra copies of the covenant in the Welcome Center, okay? That's one of the things that we said we're going to do for one another. And so don't let that go by. That's just one application here of covenantal living here. You see, to live obediently is something they covenanted to do. Um, the second thing, they covenanted to live separately. I'm going to move quickly and, and draw this too close. They, moved, they, they covenanted to live separately. In verse 30, it says, We will not give our daughters and our peoples, or excuse me, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land and take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grains on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. Okay, so they said, we're going to live differently. We're going to live separately. We're not going to capitulate to cultural pressure. We're going to be obedient to the scriptures. We're going to be obedient to the law, even if it's unpopular. Okay, that's going to be the subject of next Sunday's message. We're going to talk about the unpopular call of being a Christ follower. Okay, and so here's a little tease into that of that they said we're going to live separately. We're, we're not going to. We're going to live by faith and not by conventional wisdom. It says if they want to buy in the Sabbath and the Holy Day, we will look at this. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Okay, so we're not going to charge interest. We're going to forego for the seventh year. We're going to follow the law and we're going to give that. That's living by faith. Conventional wisdom says, wait a minute, I got to provide for my family. I got to work. And so I don't have to follow God's word because I'm trying to provide for my family here. <laughs> Let me tell you, you be obedient to God's word and he will take care of your family, okay? Don't, don't feel like that you have to disobey God's word in order to take care of your family. This is what these people, when they had the resurgence of the priority of the word of God, this is what they came to. They said, we're going to live separately. We're not going to live according to the conventional wisdom of this world. And finally, they, they committed or covenanted to live sacrificially. Verses 32 to the rest of the chapter, I don't have time to read all of it, but it talks about how they're going to give 
They're going to give to the house of the Lord for the service of their God. They're going to give in the offerings. And then notice how we'll point this out in verse 33. It says the regular offerings. And so it was a consistent sacrificial giving that they were going to say that we're going to do, that we're going to prioritize the feast, that we will give of the first fruits. We're not going to give if anything's left over. No. If according to verse 35, we will obligate to bring to first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of the, uh, of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. And he said, we're going to give first before anything else. And so the income that God gives to us, the increase that God gives to us, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to give it to God. Okay. We're going to give a portion of it to God. Then we're going to deal with everything else. We're not going to say, how can we live our lives? And then if there's something left over, we'll give it to God. That's backwards. They said, wait a minute here. We, we've gone into this habit of living. No, we need to do it this way because this is what God's commanded. They will not neglect the house of God, it says at the end of the chapter there. So they covenanted to live sacrificially. I need to bring this too close. The word should bring celebration, okay? You and I, when we spend time in the word, it should cause our hearts to celebrate how great God is, Okay? So spend time in the Word. And this is one of the reasons why we gather together and we teach the Word. I I don't know about you, but even for me, as I'm reading in the sermon earlier, I'm reading that long section of chapter 9, and I'm reading about how merciful God is. As I'm reading to you, God's doing a work in my spirit saying, God, you really are great. God, you really are merciful. God, you really are compassionate and kind and merciful and compassionate and all these things. And, and he's doing a work in my life, and I want to celebrate. And, and sometimes I, 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 I get, you, you know this, I get talking so fast they can't understand me. It's because I'm excited about how good God is. I'll work on slowing down and enunciating so you can celebrate with me. But if you can't understand me, just tell you, there, you're celebrating again. So the words should cause celebration. And, we can't, and we're not celebrating if we're not obeying. The word should cause confession. Confess your shortcomings to God. Confess your sins to the Lord. Make that a regular habit. Immediately, as soon as you're convicted of a sin, don't put it off till later. If you say, yeah, okay, I'll get, I'll get to prayer with God about that later on. You know, no, 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 no. You're, that's a lie from Satan because you'll never get to it. I'm telling you. I've lived that. I've, I've followed that lie before. Immediately, in that moment, say, God, I'm sorry for this. You're, you're driving. That's the beauty about prayer. It doesn't matter where you're at. You can pray. And she also causes us to confess how great God is. And then it should be that covenantal living. So let's prioritize the word. You know, we're, gonna, we're attempting monumental things. Some physical, like the wall, okay? Um, and, and we need to do that. They needed to do that. But I love how the book brings it to the foundation of the word of God. And that's what we want to do with all the work, the painting, the repairing, all the stuff that we want to do here. We're going to keep coming back to why are we doing this? So we can be a better witness for Christ. So we can be better, have better uh, conversations. One of the reasons why I want to do these monumental projects here together, particularly the basements, and we're not trying to fundraise that out so that we can hire painters for it, is because we need to be standing next to each other with paintbrushes and paint rollers and tape and talking with one another and interacting with one another. That's how relationships are built. So that's what we're going to do. As much as possible, we're going to do the work ourselves, just like they did in Nehemiah. We're going to have to hire some things out. I get that, and I'm okay with that. But in the main, we're going to be doing as much as we can together because that is how relationships are forged. And we can celebrate together. So when you spend time with one another, ask a question. How's God great to you? 
How can I pray for you? You'll be amazed that, you know, once that be, we're trying to change the culture here. Once that happens, it'll just be so free-flowing and we'll have great celebration because we've prioritized the Word of God. The powerful effects of the Word. Is the Word affecting you like it was here? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can uh, worship you. Thank you for what you have done for us. Lord, I do pray, I, I pray earnestly that the Word of God would have these powerful effects like it did on these people here. We need, we need to celebrate you. We need to obey you. We need to confess our sins before you and confess how great you are in the process. And we need to live according to a covenant of following you and being obedient to you. But we can only do that through your grace and mercy, and that's what we're praying for. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.